Let's pray again. God, we want to sincerely ask again uh, for you to do what we just prayed through song, that you would bless your people and give your word success. God, we pray that your word would come forth in such a way that those who hear would receive it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, and that it would be at work in the believers. And God, we pray also that it would call to life, that you would call to life through this word, new believers. God, we pray that you would use your word to make us increase and abound in love for you and for one another. We pray that you would establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you, ultimately at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God, we pray you would use your word to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak. We pray you would do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you open your Bible to Joshua 21, then you'll be in the right place. Uh, We've been keeping a pretty good pace in our sermon series on Joshua, usually taking one or even two chapters at a time. We need to slow way down this morning and look at what may be the three most significant verses in the entire book of Joshua. These three verses are the great conclusion of all that has come before it in the book of Joshua. And the following three chapters left in the book, chapters 22 through 24, are something of of a coda to this story that's come before in the previous 21 chapters. So I say these may be the three most significant verses in the whole book because they conclude and sum up three of the great overarching themes of the whole book. Land, rest, and promise. If you can remember these three words... And if you can find your way to these three verses at the end of chapter 21, then you will have your mind wrapped around many of the most significant themes of the book of Joshua. God's goodness to give land and rest. God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Uh, Building that same case, listen to how this commentator talks about these three verses. He says, this passage is the theological heartbeat of the book of Joshua. It deliberately echoes the concerns of the introduction. It structurally draws a line across everything that is preceded. Here is the jugular vein of the book. And then the same commentator goes on to chide other commentators who don't show the same appreciation For the importance of these verses, he says, two major commentaries published within the last 20 years, a lot only nine and five lines respectively to this section, an inexcusable blunder. So we will attempt to avoid an inexcusable blunder and give due attention to these three verses. Uh, Here's one way to think about how these verses conclude and sum up 
the book of Joshua, verse 43, summarizes the second major section of the book, the dividing up of the land of Canaan. Uh, In chapters 13 through 21, God gave Israel all the land, and they settled in it. That's what verse 43 says. And verse 44 summarizes the first major section of the book, the entering and conquering of the land. And that's in chapters 1 through 12. Verse 44 says, uh, summarily, God gave Israel rest in the land, and none of their enemies withstood them. And finally, verse 45 encompasses both major sections, the whole book. God kept his promises. So let's dive in and look at verse 43 now. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. The Lord gave they took possession, they settled. Uh, obviously, if you've been with us, it'll be obvious to you how this wraps up the last several chapters. And even if you haven't been with us, you can just flip back and glance at chapters 13 and following, and you'll see and be reminded of the lists upon lists upon lists of geographic boundaries and ancient cities that God gave to various tribes and individuals within Israel. And if you put all of that together, you end up with this conclusion. The Lord gave to Israel all the land. Uh, Now some of you may wonder, why did we even need all those chapters of endless details of geography? Why didn't the Holy Spirit inspired author just cut to the chase and give us this concluding statement right here? Do we really need chapters 13 through 19 cluttering up our Bibles with these details that really just make this one main big point summarized right here in verse 43? The Lord gave to Israel all the land. So along the way, we've given several answers to variations of that question, talking about the importance of those detailed chapters, but but let me focus in on one more right now. God's promise to give Israel the land was such an important part of the Bible's storyline up to this point, the first five books of the Bible. He made these promises so long ago to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, as verse 43 emphasizes. This isn't just any land God gave to his people. What did verse 43 say? This is the land that God swore to give to their fathers, uh, their forefathers, Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that was so long ago. And for hundreds of years, the fulfillment of this promise seemed so unlikely. Really, so unlikely. Uh, Those first generations of Israelites, they came to the land of Canaan and they lived there as strangers and as sojourners, and not as possessors of it. They were foreigners roaming around the land, and there really were not very many of them, uh, just a, a blip on the radar screen in Canaan. And then, of course, subsequent generations of Israelites left the land altogether and ended up slaves in Egypt. And so when we hear these words, the Lord gave to Israel all the land, it really is such 
a momentous thing. Consider these words from David Howard. God's promise of the land to Abraham was such an important part of the covenant with him and his descendants. So much of the first five books of the Bible consistently point toward Israel's inheritance of this land and gives instructions for how to live in it. It therefore should not surprise us that when the time finally comes that Israel entered into possession of the land, the book of Joshua lingers over and savors this wonderful fulfillment. I I believe that's right. Chapters 13 through 21 are in part a lingering over, a savoring of this wonderful fulfillment of a very great and gracious promise of God to his people. A promise which may have seemed to many people at many times over the previous several hundred years that God would not or could not actually make good on it. And all of these preceding details stand to show the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God in specifics. God fulfills his promises in specific ways. God fulfills his promises in personal ways. God fulfills his promises really, literally, not in an abstract or impersonal or uh, pie-in-the-sky religious myth kind of way. What you read in chapters 13 through 21 are actual places on the face of the earth that we live on. These are actual happenings in the history of the world that our lives fit into. And these chapters highlight just how concrete and just how real this statement in 2143 is. God's faithfulness is real. This this is real estate. God really did keep this promise. God really does keep his promises concretely. God gave the land like he promised, which means not something abstract for a generic group of people. It means specific inheritances for specific people, many of them named specifically in these chapters. Wouldn't it be so encouraging to see your name or at least your family name, listed in God's book. That's what it would have been like for the original hearers of this. It would have been to them such a great hope and such a great encouragement to trust God and His grace. It's also wonderful to think that the Bible teaches God has a book of life that lists individual names of real people. It's wonderful to consider the Lamb's book of life doesn't simply say, in general, the people God saves. Rather, at least the way the New Testament talks about it, it seems this book of God lists specific names that God has graciously chosen to save in Christ. God keeps his promises concretely, specifically, 
personally, comprehensively. And so here in this verse, the Holy Spirit-inspired author invites us to stop before we start thinking about, talking about something else in the book of Joshua. Stop, consider, linger, savor all that God has just accomplished. So that's what we're trying to do right now. This verse also encourages us in that it shows us how God keeps his very old promises. Concretely and comprehensively. Remember the emphasis, one of the emphases of the verse we're considering. God gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers. That was a long time before the book of Joshua. Almost 500 years before this moment described in Joshua 21 is when God chose to call a man, Abraham, out of an idol-worshiping family, out of an idol-worshiping land, to create a people for himself who, who would trust and worship him. He did that in Genesis 12. The Lord calls Abraham and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through through the land. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And God reiterated this promise to give the land to Abraham and his offspring repeatedly. He also indicated it wouldn't be fulfilled right away. In Genesis 14, 13 and following, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and even will be servants there, and they will be afflicted For 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here. Abraham's miracle son, Isaac, received the same promise. Genesis 26, 2 and following. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, later renamed Israel, received the same promise. The Lord appeared to him in a dream, Genesis 28, 13, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. So here we see what is meant in Joshua 21. God swore to give this land to the fathers. And Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called by God to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of promise. And when he got there, he lived in it as if it was a foreign land. 
and not his homeland. And he lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And they all acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they did not live in the land in any sense that it could have been said they possessed it. They certainly did not settle in it, hence living in tents. Many generations later, hundreds of years after God made the promise, God fulfilled a very old promise. I mean, think about it. Generation after generation after generation passed in between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And for the vast majority of these generations, there was nothing about their circumstances. There was nothing about the current events on the world stage that would give any indication that this would actually happen. All they had was the word of God's promise. But that was enough for them to confidently wait for God to do what he said he would. They had to live by faith, convinced of things not seen. And I think this is so helpful for us to consider, to see that God fulfills, how God fulfills this very old promise. Because... So much of what it means for us to live as Christians is to confidently wait for God to fulfill very old promises. Not just hundreds of years ago, but thousands of years ago. Our Lord Jesus promised, I will come again. Even in the days of the apostles, they were waiting for God to fulfill that promise. You remember Titus 2, 13, that Dr. Scott preached a couple of Sundays ago. The Apostle Paul said, we are waiting, in the first century, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're almost 2,000 years after Paul wrote those words, and we're still waiting for God to fulfill those words. We're still waiting for our blessed hope. This is a very old promise. And you need to know that God keeps very old promises. Witness Joshua 21, 43. God gave to Israel the land that he swore to give to the fathers. The apostle Peter warned that scoffers would come scoffing about those people who still believe that God would would keep this promise, even though it had been such a long time since the promise was issued. Specifically, the promise of Jesus' return. In 2 Peter 3, I'll just read excerpts of this. In 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter warned, Scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? It's been a long time. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. And then Peter gives encouragements to combat that scoffing. Gives encouragements like these. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. The Lord fulfills old promises, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill them. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, land, in which righteousness dwells. And you know what? The apostle Peter, who wrote that, he's still waiting. He is still waiting by faith, according to God's promise, for a new heavens and a new earth. Now, don't get me wrong. He's in a great place in the meantime. He's away from the body, but still at home with the Lord. He's in the presence of God, enjoying bliss and communion with God, freedom from sin, but still waiting for the completion of his redemption, the resurrection of his body, the creation of the new earth. Peter, with us, waits the fulfillment of God's old promise for God to give him a promised land, new creation, real estate, where righteousness dwells. And we are called to confidently wait with him. God is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not being slow now. He's not being slack now. We are to count the patience of the Lord as salvation because God wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So there's even a sense then, right, in which Father Abraham is still waiting by faith to inherit the world, as Romans 4.13 says, to inherit the land at the resurrection of the dead. I believe that's part of the reason why it was so important for Abraham and for Isaac and for Jacob and Joseph. Remember, Joseph uh, died in Egypt, but when he died, he said, be sure when y'all leave that you carry my bones and bury them in the land of Canaan. All of these guys wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan. And I think that's because uh, they realized They realized that they would inherit the promise of God in the age to come at the resurrection of their bodies. Hebrews 11, 13 and following says, These all died in faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth, They desired a better country. They believed that God would make them inheritors of this promise to give them the land. So we await the return of Christ. We await the resurrection of the dead. We even await, in a sense, for God to fulfill a a very old promise concerning our own justification. We wait for God to confidently wait because of the work of Christ for God to declare us righteous on judgment day. And we're confident because of the perfectly righteous life of Jesus and and the substitutionary death of Jesus for sinners that those count as our perfect life before God. And Jesus' death counts as our 
sin-removing and penalty-paying death through simple faith in Him. And it can count for you as your perfect life and your sin-removing death if you will just trust Him. It's a free gift. We await the fulfillment of the oldest promise in the book. The one made by God in the Garden of Eden that the Messiah would crush the seed of the serpent, the devil. And and that promise has been fulfilled already, partially at the cross of Christ, where that ancient snake was struck a mortal blow. But his final doom is still to come at the end. So do not forget this, friends. God is in the business of fulfilling very old promises. So it is likely that at some point in your life, if not already, you may struggle with how long God's people have had to wait for God to fulfill his promises. Maybe you'll consider how long ago the promises of the New Testament were were written and the world just keeps spinning. Uh, Maybe you'll just consider how long it has been since you first believed. Maybe you'll hit middle ages or older ages and be tempted to think, I've trusted in these promises for what feels to me like a really long time, and I still haven't seen some of them come to pass. At some point in your life, you may struggle with how long it seems like you have to wait for God to fulfill some much smaller promise of your word in his personal life. God has promised to provide for me, and I don't know how that's going to happen, and here I am two weeks into this trial. How long, O Lord? Remember these words in Joshua. I pray these words from the book of Joshua are healing medicine for any doubt in your heart. The Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers. Be assured of the things hoped for. It doesn't matter how long the promise goes unfulfilled. The promise does not expire. God ever lives. There is no statute of limitations for God's promises. Keep clinging to them and claiming them as your own in Christ. There's a danger if if you do not consciously rely on God's God's promises and choose as an act of the will to trust them that time will wither away more and more and more of your confidence that God will make good on his word. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Pursue faith together and personally. The faith comes by hearing hearing the word of Christ. Having now seen the Lord gave the land like he promised, we turn our attention now to verse 44. And we'll see here, the Lord gave rest just like he promised. Verse 44, the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. So this gift of rest 
this promise of rest is very important in the book of Joshua. Before the conquest ever started, before they even entered into the land of Canaan, Joshua exhorted, you may remember this, Joshua exhorted all the Israelites who had already received their inheritances outside of the land of Canaan, east of the Jordan River, and he reminded them they needed to cross into the land with the rest of their brothers in order to help them secure their inheritances as well. And Joshua spoke of these inheritances of land, both those east of the Jordan and those west of the Jordan in Canaan, and referred to them as divine gifts of rest. Chapter 1, verse 12 through 15. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, those were the two and a half outside the land, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And then after the conquest was complete, the achievement of rest is specifically highlighted. Chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Likewise in chapter 14, 14, verse 15. The land had rest from war. And later in the book of Joshua, after uh, chapter 21... There are a couple of times where the author continues to reflect back on the victory in the land and the gift of Canaan. And when that happens, the gift of rest continues to be a refrain. Chapter 22, verse 4. Now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Chapter 23, verse 1. Tells of a long time afterward. When the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. So the gift of rest in the land was even something that God swore to give to his people well before. They actually received it in the book of Joshua. Um, I'll give you just one example, although several from, from earlier books of the Bible could, could be cited. God promising to give them rest. Um, here's one in Exodus 33. In verse 14, uh, after the Lord saved his people out of Egypt, and then he gathered them together at Mount Sinai to meet with him, to enter into covenant with him formally. And as they were about to leave Mount Sinai, uh, God graciously renewed his promise to them despite their sin. He renewed his promise to bring them into the land, and he did that by saying, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Uh, One important scripture after the book of Joshua that looks back on these happenings. Psalm 95. Psalm 95 actually looks back at the generation of Israelites right before 
those described in the book of Joshua. Those who did not enter the land of Canaan, who died in the wilderness outside of the land, instead of entering the land, because they didn't believe God's good promises. And when God barred them from entering the land, he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. My rest. So this phrase that God gave the people rest, just as he swore, is a big deal to God and to the storyline of Scripture. Uh, What is meant by this rest that God gave his people? Well, from one angle, it means rest from enemies, as verse 44 makes clear. God gave them rest on every side, and that's expounded upon by noting how none of Israel's enemies stood against them. All were given into their hand. So for God to give rest means, first of all, the gift of peace and security that follows victory and warfare. But the gift of rest is even more than God putting an end to Israel's war. The gift of rest was also God putting an end to Israel's wandering. To have rest in the land indicates that there would be no more traveling through the wilderness. No more sojourning in this land as strangers, living in tents. How much of you get great rest while you're camping? There will be no more even full-on, large-scale battling in the land as Conquerors, certainly no more enslavement in Egypt. All that was over now. They had rest now. And rest signifies, especially how it's picked up in Hebrews, how, how we'll, we'll look at in a little bit. Rest signifies then a, a kind of completion of God's redeeming work. No more enemies. No more wandering. Peace, security, stability, Inheritance, home, uh, how you feel when you walk into your own house. You know, you loosen the tie and you kick off the shoes. And it, There's an aura of rest about a place called home. They were possessors of God's promises and they were settled around God's manifest presence. This is the rest of God. It sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, Robert Hubbard puts it this way. He says, The Old Testament understands rest as the gracious gift of God to his people against the backdrop of a long journey and intense warfare. It connotes a sense of relief from frightening threats, of safe, happy arrival, of realizing long-held dreams, of coming into unexpected wealth, of finally being home, That is what the Lord's faithfulness in settling Israel in its promised land means to Israel. How does this affect the way that you see God? How good is God? The living God is the kind of God who desires his people's rest. God himself is a God who rested in creation, and he invites his people made in his image and being renewed in his image in Christ by the power of the Spirit 
to share in that rest. And I wonder, do you see God in this way? As a God who gives rest to his people? Or for some of you, is your view of God more like that of the Pharaoh that Israel served in Egypt? A demanding and slave-driving kind of master. The great God of Israel is not like the Pharaoh that he saved his people from. God is the great giver. God is a God who does good to his people always. Even through his commands that require our self-denial and our sacrifice. God sent his son as the perfect representation of what God really is like. uh, Because the son shares in full in the one divine nature. And so Jesus revealed the character of God when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the character of the living God. The most explicit use of the Joshua story in the New Testament draws upon this theme of rest. Really, I'm only aware of two times in the New Testament uh, where the man Joshua is mentioned. One is in Acts 7, when there's a guy being martyred named Stephen, and his speech is really all about the tabernacle and, and the temple, and he just mentions that Israel brings the tabernacle into the land with Joshua during the conquest. Uh, but the other place is in the book of Hebrews, and there the author appeals to Joshua as a much more significant part of the point he's making. Uh, and in Hebrews, as I said, it's this theme of God's rest that's in view. So turn to Hebrews now with me. The author, inspired by the Spirit, uh, really starts this section about the rest for God's people back in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 7. And you may even have a subtitle for this section, which is not inspired, but can be helpful, uh, that says something like, a rest for the people of God. And the author begins by quoting Psalm 95, which we've talked about, reflecting on how the the generation of the exodus of Israelites did not enter the promised land. And so God said, they shall not enter my rest. That quote begins in verse 7. And I want to just read you some of this portion of, some of this part of the book of Hebrews. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. 
they shall not enter my rest. And then the next verse, verse 12, the author tells us how he wants us as Christians to respond to that scripture. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. I love that phrase. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And look down to verse 18 now. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter, that is to enter his rest, because of unbelief. Therefore, chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. And look down at verse 6 now. Since therefore it remains, it remains for some to enter God's rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, after the days of Joshua, in the words already quoted, Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So key in on this, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his at creation. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's another great phrase. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the main point of that section is that God's rest is a promise that remains. It is a promise that remains for us to enter into if we believe. And as we believe and hold fast in Christ until the end, and we're to encourage one another, and exhort one another, and watch out for one another to that end, that you would hold fast to Christ and enter into God's rest. Now, you may be confused uh, when the author of Hebrews said in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. I thought Joshua did give them rest. Well, the author is not denying that some measure of rest was given through Joshua to his people, as verse 44 in our, our text this morning makes clear. But what the author of Hebrews is ultimately claiming is that the rest given in Joshua's day was not the ultimate 
lasting rest that God has in store for his people, which is evident by the fact that it didn't last for all generations, and also evident by the fact, as the author of Hebrews pointed out, that God spoke of another rest for his people long after the days of Joshua in Psalm 95, which was written long after the days of Joshua. So this is good news. All of you, when I described what it meant that God was giving them rest, and I said, doesn't that sound good? And some of you murmured in satisfaction. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Strive to enter that rest. Believe God's promises in Christ. And and it's for all who repent of their sin and trust in the work of Christ alone. For all of those people, God offers a rest to experience and to enjoy forever. And one day, all of God's people will have this perfect experience of rest God will give a settled, stable peace and security that is the result of deliverance from every conflict and every trial and every enemy. It it will be able to be described as rest on every side. We have small children, and I think sometimes I can describe my home as unrest on every side. It's a wonderful thing, though. (laughs) But so, too, will this rest on every side be a wonderful thing, an exceedingly wonderful thing. It will be a rest that results from being planted in a place to call home with God. God's rest will signify the completion of our redemption And it will not be like living in tents. But even now, we look forward to that. Even even now though, in the midst of conflict and trial and enemy, we can experience and taste something of God's rest. Because he is with us even now. Because his promises are for us now. And, And some of those promises we trust in now. We look forward to their fulfillment in the end. But some of God's promises we trust in and experience their fulfillment in this life. We can have a foretaste of that ultimate rest of God even as we learn to walk with Him now. How wonderful it is for us to read long after Joshua's day that the promise of entering His rest still stands that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God and that we who have believed enter that rest. And finally, turn back to Joshua 21. Let's look at verse 45 together. This is a beautiful verse. Verse 45, not one word, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. 
Not one word failed. All came to pass. The Lord gave promises. He kept every one. Not a word of any one of them failed. And more literally, not one word fell. Not one word that God spoke fell to the ground. Unfulfilled. All came to pass. Now there's a tension in the book of Joshua, isn't there? We've read uh, many times in the previous few chapters that, that Israel failed to enter into all of the fullness of what God gave because of their unbelief and their disobedience. But that does not negate the fact that it can rightly be said that God did not let his words fall to the ground. And this verse really gathers up even the previous two verses as well. Those two verses also highlighted God's promises. The Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore. Verse 43 and verse 44, the Lord gave to them rest on every side, just as he had sworn And now we hear that it wasn't only these two major promises for land and rest that the Lord made sure wouldn't fall to the ground. Uh, This verse says God kept all of his promises. That is another major emphasis of these three verses. That the Lord was faithful 100%. Uh, Did you hear how often the language of all and every was used in, in these verses? Verse 43 said the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give. Verse 44, the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. All, all, every, all, all, not one of all. No word of God will ever fall to the ground. Old promises, new promises, big promises, small promises, all of God's promises. And we talked about in the beginning of this sermon, and really in the last, whatever it's been, 20-something sermons, that God is mainly... Joshua is mainly the story of God fulfilling his promise concerning the land. And that's a big promise. We've looked at that. That's a major promise in the storyline of Scripture. And to that end, uh, also, God made a really big, major, important promise that the enemies of Israel would not be able to stand against them. And so it's easy in this book to see the fulfillment of those major biblical promises. But there are a lot of little, for lack of a better word, Promises may be easier to overlook words of God that are also fulfilled in this book. That's part of the glory of all the details of chapter 13 through 21. I think about, just for example, the preeminence of the tribe of Judah in chapter 15, the prominence of the tribe of Ephraim, and then thirdly Manasseh in chapter 16 and 17, the inheritance for the old man Caleb in chapter 15, the inheritances for the daughters of Zelophehad, if you remember that, wherever that was, the establishment of the cities for Levites scattered throughout the land, 
earlier in chapter 21, and so on. Uh, You know, if God didn't give Israel the land of Canaan, that would be a glaring, obvious failure of the faithfulness of God. But really, for several of these other words, most of us could go without seeing their fulfillment and probably never even realize they fell to the ground. But God wanted it known that not one, not just the big ones, not one of his promises fall to the ground. God keeps his promise in everything. Everything God's word says concerning you will come to pass. Everything. Not just big things like giving you eternal life, raising you from the dead. God is faithful in even all of his, again, for lack of a better word, smaller promises and words of blessing. Promises like we've heard Pastor Dan preach. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If you let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That promise will not fall to the ground. Or Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses his transgressions and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That won't fall to the ground. You can count on it. Another we heard Pastor Dan preach, Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Those words won't fail. John 36. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. Those words won't fall to the ground. Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Those words aren't going to fail as you learn to live in, in faith. And we are to learn to live by faith in these promises. We are to walk day by day relying wholly, sink or swim, on the fact that God will surely do what he said. And this is a wonderful way to live. Because, if you notice, in verse 45, these promises are called good promises. God's promises for his people are very good promises. And I I think they're called good, first of all, because they're aimed at doing us good. Again, how good does God's rest sound? And furthermore, God's promises are also good promises because they are promises of his grace. By that I mean he promises to to give to his people freely good things. They're gracious promises, promises of God giving to us without, uh, without money. Right, come and buy. And the big promises of verse 43 and 44 both emphasize how God's promises were completely of grace at the roots, were examples of God's free giving. Verse 43, the Lord gave to Israel all the land. Verse 44, the Lord gave them rest on every side. In the end of that verse, the Lord had given 
all their enemies into their hands. So to trust God's good promises then is to trust in his grace, to trust God will give to us. God will give to us in accordance with his never-failing words. And we need to learn to live putting our faith in those promises that God will give to us what is good and needful. And of course, most importantly, that he will give us salvation from sin so we can enjoy love and fellowship with him. So, so this is the heartbeat of the Christian life and, and of true religion. Grace through faith. God is the giver. And we are called to believe what he promises to give and come to him desiring to receive what he says is good and best. And it's set up this way so that all the glory will belong to God forever and ever. We're saved by grace through faith as we trust in his good promises, especially those concerning the work of Christ. But so too can we live a life pleasing to him also by his grace through faith as we live consciously relying on the promises of his word and that they really are for us if we are in Christ. So there's a well-known book by um, John Piper called Future Grace. And the main idea there is, is we live the Christian life by faith in future grace, that we live trusting God will give us future. God will give to us what he's promised. And, and not just in the far distant uh, future of the afterlife, but today, this afternoon, after church. This is how we live, abiding in God and walk in the power of the Spirit. We deliberately choose, moment by moment, to believe and rely upon God giving, by his grace, what he has promised to give. Uh, so I want to challenge you to ask yourself, I've asked you to talk about this in your small group, what are some good promises of God given for Christians that you would do well to remember more often, to help you live for Christ day by day? Or uh, consider the times you typically fall into sin In those moments, what promises of God might you be overlooking or even disbelieving? If you're a Christian, you need to remember in those moments, what good thing has God committed himself to give to me freely in Christ that you could rely upon and live live out of? Uh, I've I've heard John Piper teach this many times, a simple acronym for how to do this. Personally, this is what he does, as he tries to apply this principle. Um, aptat. A-P-T-A-T, aptat. So you can just Google John Piper, aptat. And, and A, admit you're powerless apart from God. P, pray for God's help. T, and here's the one he really hones in on. T, trust a specific promise. A, act, believing God will prove true to his word. And then T, thank. Thank God for his faithfulness after you've acted. So if someone's being mean to you and you realize, uh, I do not want to repay evil for evil, but I do not have the resources within myself to do that, 
because uh, I feel like taking revenge upon this person and stabbing him with my tongue in the way that I speak. Um, I say, God, I admit, I cannot do what you command. I know what you command, to not repay evil for evil. I cannot do that. I admit I am powerless. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Pray for God's help. God, would you help me? Trust a specific promise. God, you have said, you have said that your grace is sufficient for me and your power is made perfect in my weakness. And I feel weak, but I'm going to choose to believe that your grace is sufficient for me. And then believing that, you act, you speak in a way that doesn't return evil for evil, but in a way that blesses and does good. And then you thank God after you act because you realize, huh, God, God didn't let his word fall to the ground. So we live by faith in future grace because none of his promises will fail. And I hope that these words are a great encouragement to you. Verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great and precious promises. God, I pray that you would help us to trust more fully in your grace day by day. And God, help us, uh, give us grace to uh, not consider you slow to fulfill your promise. But God, help us to trust you even in the midst of conflict and trial and of unrest in some measure. Thank you for being such a good and gracious God and Savior. Thank you that the promise of rest still stands for us. Thank you that we who believe enter into it. And God, we thank you uh, for the hope of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Thank you that we can belong there because of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.